What was 30 days is now 60 days. What was 100 million is now 75. What was a $50 million check is now 30. The idea would be like, okay, you really only need 30 to get to your next step of product market fit. So just take 30, don't take 50. You're listening to The Startup Podcast. This is a Reacts episode. Industry insiders having frank debates about the latest tech, politics, and business news. Whether you're a founder, investor, or operator in a startup, you'll gain insights into how current events connect to broader themes and trends that impact your startup, your investments, and your day-to-day operational decisions. The conversation starts now. Hey, I'm Chris Saad. I'm Emil Michael. And I'm Yaniv Bernstein. And on today's React episode, we're going to talk about the fundraising environment. Have things thawed? How should founders start to think about fundraising in 2024, 2025? And how do IPOs and exits affect fundraising at the early stages? We're also going to touch on Taylor Swift's deep fakes all over Twitter. What does it mean for Taylor Swift? But more importantly, what does it mean for culture and politics as more and more celebrities and important figures start getting faked on major social networks? All right, let's jump into it. This episode of the Startup Podcast is brought to you by Coda. If you want a platform that empowers your startup to strategize, plan, and track goals effectively, you can get started with Coda today for free and get a $1,000 credit at coda.io slash TSP. That's C-O-D-A dot slash TSP for the Startup Podcast to get started for free and get a $1,000 credit. Coda.io slash TSP. This episode of the Startup Podcast is brought to you by Vanta. You might know that sinking feeling. You're about to land a big contract when they ask about compliance. SOC 2, ISO, PCI, Essential 8. You've just snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. Not anymore. Vanta massively accelerates your compliance efforts and allows you to get those life-changing deals back on track. Don't wait until it's panic stations, though. Get started with Vanta today. They're offering 20% off their prices just for TSP listeners. Do yourself a favor. Hit pause. Go to vanta.com slash TSP. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com to get that 20% off. So, Emil, our first and our major topic for today is we wanted to talk about the fundraising environment for founders in 2024. Obviously, folks are coming out of a very rough 2023, and the, the question on everyone's minds is, is 2024 going to be better, or is it just going to be more of the same? What have you been seeing? Yeah, so any entrepreneur out there who is thinking about another round and they're covering another investment round had a pretty tough 23 on the backs of sort of a crashing tech stock market that started in 22 rising interest rates in late 22 and 23 it was just bleak so you had all these funds that were sort of licking their wounds from some big losses not only from fraudy things like ftx but just katera just zeros big companies that had taken lots and lots of money and turned into zeros and And there was a fear cycle. So if you're a venture capitalist, even if you thought it was a good company, you're afraid of your other partners, of your LPs, and you weren't investing in anything except to maybe support your existing portfolio that you thought was a good company. So you saw a lot of bridge rounds, a lot of internal financings, but less of the kind of external. And I think that 24 is going to be different. We're going to get a little bit back to normal. And when I say normal, I don't mean 2021. I mean, sort of a little bit back to normal venture capital stage investing cycle where you have to show up different levels of product market fit at every stage of financing. The dollars are going to be smaller than they were. The valuations will be smaller, but at least the money will start to flow and good companies will be able to raise because the fear factor is sort of melting away a little bit. And now people are looking for bargains or deals or good companies to put the capital to work on. 
what you're describing, it sounds like investors were being irrational in the way that a lot of investors are, including just regular individuals, which is when things are really bad, instead of saying, oh, okay, you know, I've got dry powder and I can pick up some bargains, you just sort of freeze up, right? So to hear you say it, it's less that something has fundamentally changed in the macro landscape and more that the investors are like, okay, that initial wave of just sort of flight or freeze response, that, that's sort of wearing off. And they're like, okay, okay, there are still bargains out there. There are still great companies being founded. And the only way I'm going to get some sort of decent return on this fund after all the investments I made in 2021 in bad companies at inflated valuations is to actually invest in good companies at fair valuations. And so they're getting back in the game. Is that a fair read? No, no, because the one thing I missed that I should add is that the expectations of entrepreneurs in terms of valuation, speed, quantum of capital, those hadn't come down as fast as they should have either. So I think you saw these companies trying to attach themselves to some version of the last round that they raised. And fundamentally, that attachment was also somewhat irrational, but we're trying to not have the next round be worse than the last round, if at all possible. And I think now everyone's much more in a realistic world where venture capitalists have to invest to make money. Entrepreneurs have to like listen to the market. The market will tell them what their companies are worth. And that sort of bargaining space, if you will, will sort of much more be in place in 24 than 23. So it's a two-sided problem. I'd really love to unpack, I think it's not obvious for a lot of founders, and I don't think it was obvious for me for a long time, why some of this compression happened in a way that's related to interest rates. So I think there's compression that occurred because of post-COVID comparables, right? The COVID brought forward all of this demand, and then that demand waned, and so everyone kind of freaked out about these accelerations slowing down. I think that's part of it. But I think the other headwind was interest rates going up. And there was like an immediate reaction, oh, this is going to impact IPOs, it's going to impact venture capital. And I don't think that people understand very clearly the causation between those things. So Emil, maybe can you just talk about like how interest rates affect IPOs and exits and the stock market and how that has a kind of downstream effect on VC and startups? Yeah, in the simplest way possible, if people allocate their money across different types of investments, right? You have a bank account. You have that bank account might even be a money market account. You have the stock market, whether specific stocks or the S&P 500. You have venture capital funds or like highly illiquid long-term PE funds that take your money, but then try to give you a big return after 10 years. When the interest rate goes up on your regular bank account from near zero to over 5%, and that's considered risk-free effectively, the U.S. government's essentially backing that or the central government of Australia or other places are essentially backing that because they're sort of behind the banks. Then to get a better return than that, you look at every other asset class and say, is the risk I'm taking worth more than that 5%? And when it's 0%, it's easily because a lot, most everything is worth more than zero, so long as it's positive. When it's 5% and you're compounding that every year for 10 years, what does a venture capital investment have to do to exceed that compounding of 5%? And it just gets harder to make the leap that that's a better investment than a CD or a money market or a treasury bond. And of course, if I'm understanding correctly, that also affects the stock market, which affects the ability for public companies to kind of splash cash around to acquire companies or for IPOs to be successful. 
which provides downward compression on exit valuations these companies can achieve or expect. So all the downstream valuations need to be right-sized. And also when you talk about you and where you would put your money, we're also, or maybe especially talking about pension funds and family offices and large allocators of capital that are the LPs, they're the funders of the funds. Uh, and so just large swaths of money just move and get reallocated. Uh, and then, of course, a bunch of portfolio companies start to wax and wane and fail. And then now the whole asset class looks like a dangerous, bad bet. I'm often reminded of this idea of, you know, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. And I'm often surprised at how little sophisticated investors seem to believe in that or, or rather live that philosophy, right? Like I, to me, and this is perhaps naive, I'm not you know, a brilliant mastermind capital allocator, but to me, it felt like there was a bunch of bargains going on during this time. And it was a perfectly reasonable time to allocate angel capital from my pocket. Tell me, Emil, is that naive or did that just take a lot of discipline and a lot of people don't have that? It definitely takes a lot of discipline, but more importantly, it depends on which market you're talking about. If you're looking at the stock market, and you said, hey, this inflation and this interest rates aren't going to last forever. Uber is at $22 a share. That looks like a good buy. I'm willing to take the risk with some port of my portfolio, knowing that this is going to end someday. That is something I think the average investor can understand. Doing it in an angel investment, which has a 10-year horizon, and you're seeing all these bankruptcies sort of happen in that industry, and you're worried if the whole industry was built on rubble, basically, and maybe the entrepreneur hasn't said, well, I'm not worth $20 million, I'm now worth 10. Everyone would have to perceive that bargain and act accordingly to make it a bargain. The private markets just aren't as liquid as the public markets. So finding a bargain isn't that obvious. And you're locking your money away for a long time. I do think, Emil, that investors as a class have acted irrationally during the whole sort of 21 to 23 period, right? There's a whiplash effect here because I remember listening during that 2021 bubble period, investors talking about, oh, you know, our valuations inflated. And they were like, yeah, yeah, they are. But we have to play the game that's on the field. I remember that phrase being used a lot. They're like, we're not happy with these valuations, but we're investors. We've got to invest. And so we do invest at these inflated valuations. And then when the valuations collapsed, right, when then the market collapsed, then suddenly the investors weren't playing the game on the field, even though valuations were lower, right? And so I don't see that as being rational. You've got all of these funds that are like having IRR below one, basically meaning, you know, that the valuation of all the stuff that they've bought is less than what they paid for it. And yet they're saying, oh, well, you know, now we're going to be very prudent allocators of capital and we need to just wait and see and so on. And I think, yeah, there was a sort of a, a cohort of startups that really struggled to raise that deserve to raise because of this whiplash effect. I mean, like which ones? Give some examples. Like who couldn't raise that should have that went out there with the shingle saying, hey, this is the evaluation based on today's multiples that didn't get funded. I mean, if you can't say, you can't say, but I think the examples were few and far between. You're adding a caveat there, which is, I think, an important one. You're saying which ones didn't raise the capital, which ones of the ones that correctly right-sized their valuation ask, right? And so what your argument is perhaps, Emil, is like, well, the ones who were great companies who right-sized their valuation ask, they raised fine, was your premises, and that's what you observed. Yeah, like trip actions. I don't know if they know that company, but they raised a flat round with a lot of structure. 
their business sort of was devastated during COVID, but it was a stable business post COVID. And some investor took the opportunity to do sort of a more protected downside protected round with them. And they were a really good company. It's hard to remove them once you have them installed. And they were a good example of a company that sort of got rational and the investor saw opportunity and there was a match. I guess, you know, what I see is more in that sort of pre-seed seed stage where I talk to a lot of companies and I think a lot of them who could have raised quite easily, or at least could have raised in 21, but also in 20 and 19 and so on, I believe could no longer raise. And what I saw happening was that the kind of the, the bottom few rungs of the ladder were removed. It's like, sure, if you had that dream story, right, where it's like, okay, look at this, we instantly got product market fit and we've got traction, and we've got revenue. Yeah, of course you can raise, like anybody can invest in the champagne startups, but there was this whole middle of good quality startups that were doing the normal early stage startup thing, good founders willing to accept reasonable valuations, good concept, technically solid, checking all the boxes of what a good early stage startup should be. And they were just not able to get anywhere. They could just not get a lead investor. I've seen bunches of them now. And it's like, okay, well, what is a venture capital industry about? I think it's a fair question, right? Is it about picking winners early on, only investing in absolute premium startups? And those are the only startups that deserve venture funding. Or do we have more of an index of investing in a whole lot of different bets? And I think as an industry, VC can change its mind. But I think for founders, the rules of the game changed. You used to get your pre-seed and your seed and you could sort of find your way there. And now it's like, oh, well, you know, until you've already got like a viable business nearly, we're not going to invest in you. And that's really hurt people. But Yanev, are you, is your experience mainly rooted in the Australian ecosystem though? Not only, not only. Sure. In, I mean, that's because my sense is the second and third tier ecosystems froze up more aggressively than the Valley and Australia specifically VC is more like private equity. It's not venture capital. It's safe bet capital. Well, that was not true for a few years there, right? That's the thing. There was a situation where like startups could raise pre-seed funding, whether the rules of pre-seed used to be, if you have a good idea, maybe you've put it out into market, you've validated a few data points, you're good founders, you're committed, we're going to give you some pre-seed money to figure it out. And then for seed, it's like, okay, now you've got some traction and we will give you more money. And I think there's been the shift where like pre-seed is you need to already have a product that has product market fit to a certain extent. And seed is now like, it's nearly gone back to what a series A or whatever used to be, which is like, if you don't have revenue, they don't even want to talk to you. I mean, you know, maybe I think, I do think there were obviously by definition, there were companies during the last cycle that got funded that shouldn't have because there was yeah. excess capital creates excess startups. And so some portion of them had to not make it. But for the portion of them that were high quality, yeah, I don't, you know, I guess I saw something somewhat different in the U.S. I think these companies, if they were really, if they were middle of the road, you call it, sort of in the mm. two mm. standard deviations that I mean, they had a really hard time. They went to insiders, they cut expenses, they did all the things they could do, and it was hard for them to raise. But it wasn't impossible for them to get money, at least from insiders or venture debt or something. And my point is, 24 is going to be a better year for those kind of companies. The way I would summarize what happened was, and Yanev, you and I actually predicted this, there'd be a flight to quality. So there'd be a flight to quality in the companies. And I think there's also a flight to quality in the ecosystems as well. 
like I, I really, you know, this is maybe gatekeeping or <laughs> kind of being clicky or something, but like, I really think that the second, third, fourth tier markets froze up harder. They just doubled down their conservatism and they allowed a lot of mediocre companies, which is the majority of the companies in those markets failed. They failed because they're mediocre and they failed because they were mediocre markets. And I think in the tier one markets, you know, Silicon Valley, New York, what have you, there was a flight to quality within those markets. And some of the best founders, the best stories, the best discipline basically got all the capital and continued their journey at, at more rational valuations. And, you know, so it was decimation for the global startup ecosystem, but the champagne startups, as you call them, Yanev, those ones, you know, skated through by the skin of their teeth. I continue to believe though, and I agree with you, Yanev, which is that there's a lot of irrationality. There's a just kind of pure FOMO at the peak of excess. Everyone's piling it in whatever valuation. And then there's this whiplash to like fear of everything. Don't touch anything. And I think along, you know, three, four, five, 10 year time horizons, it was made perfect sense to start investing angel rounds in these very reasonable valuations and take those companies on a journey. And we can see it now, a year later, two years later, the markets are easing up and those bets would have been played out pretty nicely, I think. But let's talk about Emil. What's changing now? What are the early leading indicators? And what do we think that the effects on the ground are going to be? What are founders going to feel in first tier, second tier, third tier markets? So I think what's changing now is two things, primarily. And we talked about some of them. Whether it's irrational or rational, the fear that VCs had about like, let's stop and fund our existing companies before we sort of have a new approach to what the new world looks like. That's not zero interest rate environment. That's sort of like coming to an end. Remember, these guys get paid VCs based on returns and management fees. And they have a limited investment period, so they have to deploy capital. So they're sort of back to deploying capital. And entrepreneurs also have sort of adjusted to, hey, this is just a different world valuation-wise. I think those two things are going to lead, along with the expectation of lower interest rates, we're already seeing lower inflation, it being an asset class that's not as hampered as it was before. So if you're an entrepreneur on the ground in 21, deals would take 30 days and you have this hyper-competitive process, whether you're champagne or a rung below champagne, you're able to generate interest because there was so much money chasing the top two tiers of entrepreneurs. I think what you'll see now is you'll see some of the chase happen, but it'll take longer and VCs will count themselves out. Like, that's too rich. I'm out. So I'm in at this valuation, but I'm not. So more discipline on the VC side, more due diligence. What was 30 days is now 60 days. What was 100 million is now 75. What was a $50 million check is now 30. And the idea would be like, okay, you really only need 30 to get to your next step of product market fit. So just take 30, don't take 50. So tighter funding rounds between accomplishments. Actually, one of the questions I wanted to ask, this is the perfect opportunity, is around whether this is good for founders. Like you mentioned, it's been this interesting thing where because of the way VC math works, when valuations were inflated, round size also inflated, right? And so you would get founders raising, yeah, 2 million at pre-seed and 10 million at seed and 40 million at series A, right? And these were very big numbers. And of course, there's always an obligatory use of capital slide in a pitch deck and so on. But the number was kind of based on, okay, you know, what is 10% or 15% of our target valuation? And I think that meant that often companies did raise more than perhaps they needed. And I think a question is, is this discipline that is effectively being imposed? Because now with the same pitch, with the same milestones, you're getting less money to achieve the same things. For founders, obviously it doesn't feel great, but is it actually in the long run, is that actually a good thing for founders and for startups to have these more realistic round sizes? 
it's just less room for error, right? And that's the hard part for a founder, right? So you go down a product direction, it doesn't work. Your cash balance wasn't 50, it was 30, or you know, t it wasn't 10, it was five. Your ability to kind of keep at it is really limited. So I think founders would be more anxious in this environment, but maybe also more disciplined. So like you remember the days where customer acquisition, no one was even looking at what CAC was. They weren't even thinking about it because they had piles of cash. Now, every start, every founder I talk to now is like very closely monitoring what CAC is. And that seems like a good thing, right? So there is some goodness in it for sure. But the number of mistakes you get to make is definitely shrunken down in this kind of environment, I think. I guess what I'm getting at is I definitely saw startups that I believe were what I would call distracted by money, by the amount of money that they had available to spend. Because when you're a startup, generally you're like, okay, I've got this much money. I should probably have 18 to 24 months runway. And again, the maths can often be top down instead of bottom up. Instead of what is it that we need to do is more like, how much do we have available to spend? And in the average case, it can be that, you know, you hire more people, you spend more money on marketing and so on, but you don't get a return for it. And I think in the worst case, which is quite common, the extra money actually makes things worse because instead of focusing on product market fit, instead of focusing, like you said, on CAC, instead of focusing on what are the sort of the lean ways of validating your assumptions, you're like, I'm going to hire a team of 10 engineers and do this and do that. And because I've got all that money and that doesn't speed you up, it actually slows you down. So you're burning more money and it's taking you longer to get where you need to get. I guess where I'm getting at is, is there a sort of a Goldilocks situation here where you want to raise the right amount of money and that is dictated as much by market dynamics as it is by what the actual business case is or what you need? You know, who knows? I mean, I, I, I would say this, that <laughs> like there is this other X factor, which is if you're in a market segment that has network effects, getting big fast may matter to the long-term value of that company. There's not a lot of companies that actually are in industries that have like clear network effects. But that is the one exception, I would say, that money as a weapon in those markets to make sure you are the one who captures that network effect is important. Yeah, in my advisory work, you know, I, of course, run into a lot of companies that are undercapitalized and they're doing all sorts of perverse things to try to keep the lights on and becoming professional services companies and so on. But I do occasionally run into and have run into quite a number of overcapitalized companies and they've overhired. They're talking about acquisition strategies and partnership strategies. And these tend to be either large companies trying to do an innovative incubation of something or a lot of crypto companies that have raised just crap tons of money, just printed money during the, high, the heyday. And they've just got way too many people doing way too many things, solving computer science problems instead of building products. And a lot of that, I have to help them pare down and think through their actual approach and it often comes down to just, hey, we just need a couple of engineers, a designer and a product manager here, man. We don't need all this other stuff. I 100% agree with you, Neil, that, you know, I think a lot of second tier founders, second tier marketplaces, second tier investors do not understand how to create network effects, the superpower of network effects and the value of dumping money on getting to network effects and scale fast. And that is something that feels like uniquely centered around Silicon Valley, the Uber alumni, you know, blitzscaling world, and is often the best approach for some of the most disruptive ideas that I see. And I'm like, why are you meandering through B2B, you know, enterprise sales land when you should be going direct to the customer, getting to network effects as fast as possible and so on. So just to really fully agree with you, Yanev, I think while capital can give you more room for errors, it can also be the source of errors. And you need to yeah. be a really great founder with great discipline to make sure that doesn't happen. 
Yeah, well, I mean, what I was going to say about network effects, because I agree, but I think there's a nuance there, which is there's a saying, nail it before you scale it, right? And I think what happened again, when capital was abundant, is you would have a network effect product with weak product market fit with, you know, low retention, low virality coefficient, whatever it is. And you could just put the money behind it to sort of artificially like weekend at Bernie's this thing. It's like, hey, look, it's alive. It's growing. But it was never really good. And I think the point is, don't get me wrong, like, I think having capital and sometimes lots of capital is an incredibly important tool for tech startups. That's in a way a big part of what this podcast is about, but it's like you shouldn't get lots of capital and spend lots of capital until you have a clear way to effectively deploy it. And when you do, then you go. And then hopefully you're a champagne asset there. You go to a VC and you're like, look at this amazing thing we have. We're on a freaking rocket ship and we need $50 million to get into orbit. And everyone's like, shut up and take my money. And I, I do think, you know, that guys who are growing like crazy, even in the depths of 23, we're able to raise. So, you know, I, I'm not too concerned about that. But yeah, I guess I'm trying to put a positive spin on this because I think it's so easy for founders to get caught up. And I think I was caught up in like, bigger round is better. Whereas actually what you want to do is raise the right size round. And in a sense, air going out of the balloon makes it easier to think about how much money do I actually need to do what I, I'm trying to do. Yeah, I'm just, I'm a cash hoarder. And I think you're going to see some <laughs> weird effects actually in this next year and two where because of what entrepreneurs just went through, someone's like, yeah, we'll lead the next round. They're going to try to pile as much money as they can into that round yeah. because they're like, what if... 2022 happens again. They'll have some of that thing. They're going to put it in a lockbox and they're not going to touch the excess part of it and be right. more disciplined about it, right? I've actually seen a couple of takes on Twitter from startups saying we raised a big round and we've just put it in an interest-bearing bank account and our entire burn is just covered by the interest payments. They don't touch the capital. <laughs> so that's one thing about high yeah, interest I rates. must say, Emil, I'm shocked. I'm shocked that you like the idea of raising lots of capital. This is uh, blowing my mind right now. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think it's obvious that the watchword over the next 12, 24 months is going to be discipline, discipline around CAC, discipline around retention, discipline around product market fit. I think that much is obvious. And discipline around valuations, right? And raising the right amount of capital. And if you can, if you're that kind of founder with that kind of momentum, maybe locking away something in a lockbox. I think the bigger question that at least we see in our work is founders being told by second tier, third tier investors, we're not going to touch you unless you have revenue. In fact, you have a certain level of revenue and you're not even qualifying for a seed round or whatever. You need to see that revenue story. The game has changed. Interest rates have changed everything. You need to have revenue, period, full stop. I'd like to engage with that story, especially from your point of view, Emil, in Silicon Valley, allocating capital yourself, helping companies raise capital. Where is your head at as it relates to early stage companies and revenue? I mean, I think it's silly to be expecting pre-seed, seed companies to be showing any material revenue or to force them to do that unnaturally to raise the round. Because by definition, those things are ideas that need money to sort of come to fruition. Going out for your Series A, you're trying to raise $25 million, that may be slightly different. But even then, how much revenue are you going to show? You're basically showing that revenue is possible and that here is the sales cycle and here is the unit economics on this and whatever. So I do worry that in second or third tier markets where there's just less of a liquid venture investing community, that some good ideas will get chopped in the knees or companies will contort to show revenue way earlier than they need to or should relative to making the idea flourish. Contortion is everywhere outside of the valley, especially. We call it twisting yourself into a pretzel. We see a lot of people doing unnatural, unscalable behavior in the interest and in the name of revenue and trying to demonstrate product market fit through revenue. And their North Star metrics start to become deal size and things instead of engagement, usage, retention, and kind of organic product-led growth. 
So then if we want to summarize these takeaways, anyone wants to add any color is we think there was a pop of the bubble thanks to COVID comparables and interest rate hikes. These crazy FOMO valuations went away. We think that there's kind of a resumption of normalcy now. Things are starting to thaw and get back to normalcy where we think disciplined founders with a great story, with great capital needs, with great valuation expectations, not necessarily revenue, can go and get capital from smart money who's paying attention to the macroeconomic climate and looking forward. Is that a good summary of where we're at? Yes. And then return to normalcy means a return to sort of like normal size rounds at normal junctures in the company's life cycle and people building businesses, paying attention to all the levers where before you didn't have to pay attention to marketing or, you know, you kind of have to pay attention to it all, even if you're a good company now. I mean, one thing that I think has been interesting, at least in the markets that I mostly operate, is that I think that founders have been so burnt. Like you said, last year, perhaps, Emil, they had unrealistic expectations of valuation to the upside. I've nearly gotten to the point now where I've seen founders who have such modest expectations of valuation, they get kind of surprised when they're like, oh, my product that's growing rapidly is actually, you know, being offered a $20 million valuation. I was going for 10. I'm like, yeah, well, good companies are definitely getting funded. There's, yeah, like we're returning to a more neutral phase. This episode of the Startup Podcast is brought to you by Vanta. The team at Vanta are passionate about helping you secure your business by vastly cutting down on the time to get compliant with frameworks like ISO 27001, SOC 2, and Essential 8. Vanta lets you close deals, sleep better at night, and get back to building your product. Help yourself and help the podcast by going to vanta.com slash TSP for an exclusive 20% off deal. I wanted to not change the subject because I think this is still in the same realm, but there's a particular other bit of current news. And I wanted to bring it up in the context of exit opportunities and how that affects the funding landscape. What we've been seeing is antitrust or at least mergers being blocked. You know, we've had Adobe Figma, apparently Amazon's withdrawn their acquisition of iRobot, the Roomba manufacturer, because they felt there was no realistic path to closing that deal. So this is happening all over the place. And when you think about VC economics, right, we sort of touched on one half of it, which is like, okay, if interest rates are higher, then returns need to be higher in VC to justify the extra risk premium, the lack of liquidity premium and so on. And that's been one of the things that's been driving valuations down. Another thing that would drive it down is obviously exit valuations. But exit valuations are, of course, tied to exit opportunities, right? And the traditional exit opportunities were IPO. And, you know, the IPO market, I think you'd say, is still a bit anemic. And the interesting thing that I haven't seen much commentary on is if M&A is becoming less of a viable path to liquidity, to an exit, how does that affect the VC space? And maybe for our founders, how do they think about positioning this thing? Not all founders are necessarily thinking about an exit, but if you're taking venture funding, you know, these funds have a life cycle, they are looking for an exit. And so how are VCs thinking about that? And what should founders maybe take away from it? I mean, it's it's a problem. The big tech companies, even the big fintech companies, Visa wasn't allowed to buy Plaid. I mean, there's been a lot in the last several years. Yeah, exactly. And that's not good for the VC backed startup community. You're going to have such chilling effect. You won't even know deals that should have happened because people are like, I'm not going to bother because I don't want to raise up the antitrust sort of gods of Lena Khan or any that, whatever, or the British antitrust. So people are not going to even try. Really bad for startups because that was a legit path to liquidity. You know, Google bought Waze, Google bought YouTube, like there's smart acquisitions. A lot of people won in those things. The less likely those are, the less likely that as an outcome for a VC-backed company. The other thing I'm surprised is we're not seeing a lot of private to private merger of equals. 
like Brex and yeah. Ramp or like, well, why there's so few of those things, which is strange to me because on paper, like, okay, big guys can't buy us. So why don't we get big? And then we have more fundraising power, less GNA costs, but obviously ego issues get in the middle of things like that. But I think it's a problem. And if I was a founder, this M&A environment, I think to the extent you thought it was 80% IPO, 20% M&A, like it's now like back down to 5% M&A is likely to be your exit. So I have an interesting thought here. Maybe we cut this out. Isn't this a huge opportunity for a great capital raiser to go to the market and say, hey, these natural fit acquisitions aren't occurring and we want to spin up a holding company and buy up these incredible companies that can't find a home, whether it's a plaid or what have you, and say, we're going to assemble the next Google by putting together these incredible companies into a new well-capitalized parent company. What do you reckon, Neil? Could you go to market and say, hey, we're going to spin up, we're going to construct an alphabet or a meta? I mean, it's hard to do because you would start with no synergies. Okay, you bought Plaid and then you have to buy like five other things. Well, well, you'd have a theme. It's sort of like doing the inverse Warren Buffett. It's like putting a bunch of companies together first as opposed to building the holding company that's based on one big assets like insurance and then using that money to go buy other things. But can you start with just a pile of money? (laughs) Maybe. Barry Diller kind of does it too. I mean, doesn't private equity do a version of this? Isn't this like a flavor of private equity? They do. They sort of do like uh, Barry Diller's operates kind of that way, holding company. And it has part of Expedia, part of Match.com, part of all these different companies. Berkshire Hathaway has more wholly owned stuff. And then, yeah, the PE guys, though, they are at least like the Vista equities that roll up all these enterprise software companies. They actually do mush them together for synergies. They're just sort of hold them separately. Yeah, but just my sense, and maybe this is unfair, is that those companies tend to be more mercenary. They buy them, they like rapidly decrease the cost parts and whatever. I I would love to see a company where there's thematics, there's synergies, and it's well run by tech executives who understand how to build culture and build integrations and actually think of it as a new brand building exercise. That just seems like something that's fun and struck me as we were talking. If I'm looking for someone who is brilliant at raising capital and uh... (laughs) looking for a job email. That would be an interesting one. If I had 100 bees sitting around, sure. What I was going to say is another sort of back to the future thing I was thinking about is, oh, here's a quick pop quiz for the two of you. What was Amazon's market cap when it IPO'd? I can ask ChatGPT right now. No, 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 no. That's, that's not, dude, that is against the rules of a freaking quiz. Two billion. Two billion. Chris. I, I, I don't know. I've got no idea. Okay. Okay. It was 438 million. So one of the things that the era of the unicorns, remember, unicorns used to be called unicorns. A unicorn, for those who have forgotten, is a private company with a valuation of more than $1 billion. One of the reasons they were called unicorns is they used to be really rare. And there's two reasons they used to be rare. One is that valuations were lower, but the other is that exits used to happen sooner. They used to happen before you reached a billion dollar valuation. You would IPO early or you would get yourself acquired early. And so one thing I'm wondering is, do we move back to that sort of world? Because it seems really hard. By the time you're a private company and you're worth $25 billion, your options are extremely limited. Yeah, I actually wanted to do an episode on M&A as an EDU episode. And I just saw a Twitter thread by a guy who'd been doing M&A for, I think it was Google. He said, I've been doing 40 M&As a year and here's what I've learned. And one of the things he said, of course, we all know this, is the higher your valuation, the smaller set of potential acquirers you have. And in the race to massive valuations, I think founders somehow forget this for some reason, that they're they're actually closing doors along the way. Yeah, I agree. This is something you have to think about as part of your growth and and exit strategy. 
I mean, look, if you're Stripe, you could just go public. Your optionality on the other side of the M&A thing is so much higher if the valuation has like any legitimacy to it. I, I don't think you get into this territory until you were like 10 billion or so. But remember, like going public at these really low valuations was really risky. Like some activists would show up or some board would see a low stock price and they make crazy moves. I mean, like the long-term thinking and the risk-taking as a public company is just a very different animal. And yeah. doing that as a really young company has some real danger to it. I mean, look mm. at all the real estate tech companies that went public in this last cycle, whether it was Blends or Open Door or Compass, they'll get whacked. And so would it be better as a public company than private? No, probably not. But I, I guess this is the point, which is I'm framing this around exits. And, you know, remember that a majority of the listeners to this show are founders. I think it's really important for founders to understand the VC business model because, you know, you want to know who you're getting in bed with and what their incentive structure is. And I think the interesting thing here is that, you know, during the boom times, people were willing to sort of put off their desire for liquidity. But at some point, shit gets real and you're like, how do I take my investment and turn it into dollars? And that very much affects founders. And so I think thinking about that. It early, does. And that, yeah. And I think it's a question for the VCs as well, because structurally, I think a lot of this happened because VC funds got bigger and bigger and bigger, right? And they have this concept of like any single investment needs to be able to return the fund. Well, if you've got a $2 billion fund, then that's a hell of a thing compared to, you know, in the old days, you had a $50 million fund, you could get out a lot earlier and still return the fund. Well, if you listen to Chamath on all the I, <laughs> I try not that, to. <laughs> I, I know, I know you do. But he seems to believe that the larger funds are the source of all evil everywhere, that it creates perverse incentives and breaks all the models and everyone's allocating the wrong kind of capital everywhere. So he's got a point. I think he's got a point. Yeah. Much as it pains me to say so. <laughs> All right, to quickly dive into our second topic, over the past week, we've seen significant controversy surrounding deepfake images of Taylor Swift especially on Twitter. And these images are obviously created through AI and obviously non-consensual. This has been imminently predictable, right? We know and we knew that really the first impacts of the new generative AI era, negative impacts really, are going to be centered around fake content, fake written content, fake image content, fake audio content, putting things into the mouths of people, creating images of famous people that were not said or created by them. You know, Taylor Swift, that's terrible and has its own implications for her and for female artists specifically, but artists everywhere. But then it's very easy to start seeing this being applied to Joe Biden and Trump. That happened as well. There was a Joe Biden yes. deep fake robocall just last week. That's right. And so we don't really want to talk about Taylor Swift so much, but we do want to talk about these early kind of shots across the bow of generative AI creating disruption for artists, but also for politics and for culture in general. So we talked about AI a few times, guys, when we've predicted some of this. Anything new now that we're seeing this happen to some of the most famous people in the world? I mean, maybe it's a good thing that it's easy for regulators to understand this particular problem. And this might be an easy thing that they all can agree on that having a deep fake that's not noted as a fake is a violation of one's privacy or their trademark or whatever. Because it's also happening in high schools with minors is really nasty stuff out there. I haven't heard a good argument for why this shouldn't have some regulation attached to it. Now there's different, there's artists who mock and, you know, there are fair use exceptions to any trademark, if you will. So you have to sort of figure out how to draw a line there, but it feels to me that this is something that most people agree on and we should figure out how to deal with it across countries, across industries and so on. I don't know. What do you think, Yannick? I'm thinking three things. I'm thinking regulation, 
moderation and provenance. So yes, regulation is important. We need laws to say this is bad and you will get in trouble for doing it. The second thing is, in our episode last week, I said, you know, Twitter laid off 75% of its workforce and they've pretty much got away with it. And, you know, I had to admit that, you know, the site's still working and so on. And that's a pretty telling thing. But it's also interesting that their reaction to this Taylor Swift stuff, which is pornographic, obviously, like this is why it's sort of so bad is they've simply made it impossible to find anything about Taylor Swift. You cannot search for Taylor Swift. They just blocked it there. And that's because they're not really well equipped to moderate content anymore. That is where at least some of that 75% in workforce reduction went. And moderation has always been important. That's been one of the criticisms of Twitter. But in a world where most content is going to be fake and often deep fake, I think moderation becomes even more important. The third thing is provenance and authenticity. So Chris Dixon, who is like the big crypto investor at A16Z, He's just released a book, and so he's doing sort of a media tour. I've heard him speak on a few podcasts lately. And I'm pretty much a crypto skeptic, but I think there is an interesting case to say, well, the concept of knowing provenance, very old term, right, of knowing where things came from and if they're real or not is becoming more and more important. And maybe crypto is the right way to solve it. Maybe it's not, but at least it's a viable use case. One way or another, there needs to be some way of knowing whether something is real or fake. And it's going to need to come from some sort of model, which is either a centralized authority model, non-Web3, or a decentralized authority model. But we need to actually know who we can trust more than ever in this world of deepfakes. Yeah, you know, Twitter's reaction of blocking the search for Taylor Swift is really very well aligned with Elon Musk's philosophy of human interaction, which seems to be brute force. Every choice he's done at Twitter lacks finesse and lacks any kind of EQ about how social network and social interactions work. And so he's like, oh, that's broken. Let's just turn off the search. But, but it's also uh, just a band-aid, band right? It's a finger in the dark here because it's just going to be more and more of this content. You can't block searches for everything, right? But of course there's a band-aid. It's a brute force nonsense solution because he eviscerated the capacity for that company to respond to the humans interacting on the platform. And so, you know, just everything you did on there is on the face of it stupid. In terms of providence, the problem with providence, of course, that is one of the key ingredients to this. The problem with providence in my mind is tool chain. Like how do you enforce the tool chain? How do you make sure that every tool that is able to generatively affect or create imagery is like compliant with the providence rules? And then do you start blocking anything that doesn't have some kind of providence compatibility? And how do you stop people from cracking or faking providence? And it's like, I just don't know how it works. And maybe it's for smarter people to solve. But yeah, this feels like Sure, you can pass regulation. Sure, you can hope for the best with moderation. Sure, you can invent tools and tool chains for providence tracking, but bad actors are going to bad. And I think this comes down to media literacy and filtering and insights at the point of consumption. So better consumption tools that float on top of, I think, any particular network or content distribution play. Well, no, no matter what, Taylor Swift has awakened this issue. And I expect like it will be a topic for a while and the nuances will get talked about at a speed they wouldn't have normally gotten talked about. Which is probably a good thing. Well, if you believe the right-wing media, Taylor Swift is currently a political psyop to get her millions of followers <laughs> out to vote for Joe Biden. So it's amazing. As usual, Taylor Swift, hey, it's me, I'm the problem, <laughs> is an accurate description. All right, guys. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure as always. Yamev, how can people find you on the internet? Okay, so I am on LinkedIn. I post a lot of stuff there that is separate from what's on the podcast. So I'd love a follow or a connection from a listener. I'm also on Twitter, not quite as active, but I put some of my spicier stuff there. So also happy to get a follow there. Emil, how can people find you? I'm on Twitter, on X, at Emil Michael. 
I just saw Paul Graham talking about Twitter on Twitter and mentioning it as Twitter. And Elon Musk replied and said, what's Twitter? And Paul Graham's like, Twitter is the name people colloquially give to this service that we're all using. And basically, fuck off. One, one of my 2024 predictions, by the way, that I made in December, it's a low confidence one, is that X does rebrand to Twitter. Like, X is just not sticking. <laughs> all right. So you can find me on all social media at Chris Saad and follow my newsletter over chrissard.com slash newsletter. Folks, if you're a regular listener of this podcast and you've gotten value from more than one or two episodes, don't forget that means you have implicitly signed up for the Startup Podcast Pact. That means that by enjoying our content, you have committed to following us in your favorite listening app and on YouTube and writing a review or a shout out wherever you have your personal audience. We love growing the show. The bigger the show is, the more we can do for you. So please go ahead, honor the pact, and we will get even bigger and better for you over the coming year. All right, guys, catch you in the next one. It's been fun. Bye-bye. This episode of the Startup Podcast was brought to you by Vanta. Vanta helps businesses get and stay compliant by automating up to 90% of the work for the most in-demand compliance frameworks. With over 200 integrations, you can easily monitor and secure the tools your business relies on. Head to vanta.com slash TSP for 20% off their incredible offering and start unlocking extra revenue today. This episode of the Startup Podcast is brought to you by Coda. I met Shishir, the founder of Coda, in its early days, and he told me they were reinventing documents from the ground up. They have absolutely done that, folks. Coda brings together the best of documents, spreadsheets, and apps into a single platform that really reimagines the document. One thing we wanted to emphasize today is the way that Coda can help your startup with planning, with strategy, with tracking goals. If you think about how hard it is to stay aligned around documents, roadmaps, OKRs, planning cycles, Coda is the perfect place to bring all this together. It has integrations, automations, all sorts of powerful tools and templates that allow your team to stay on the same page. And if you listen to this podcast, you know how absolutely critical that is. Coda really is a fantastic platform and exclusively for listeners of the Startup Podcast, Coda have a special offer where you can get $1,000 of free credit if you sign up today. Support the podcast and your own startup by going to coda.io slash TSP for the Startup Podcast and get started for free and get a $1,000 credit coda.io slash tsp